This is History West Midlands. Meet the white slaves of England, the poverty-stricken housewives who sweated and toiled for 12 to 13 hours a day to make chains in hundreds of dark, cramped outhouses around the black country town of Cradley Heath. Describing these conditions, one visitor wrote, one may come across sheds with five or six women, each working at her anvil. Misery is only too visible be it in the foul rags and preposterous boots that the women wear, or in their haggard faces and the faces of the frightened infants hanging on to their mother's breasts as these ply the hammer, or sprawling in the mire on the floor amidst the showers of fiery sparks. Paid as little as five shillings, 25 pence a week, for hammering out up to 5,000 links of chain, these women became an icon of the evils of the sweated labour demanded by the piecework system that ruled the daily struggle to survive. In this programme, social historian and author Professor Carl Chin tells the story of how, in 1910, these women combined to fight for better conditions and how, led by their charismatic union organiser Mary MacArthur, they established the principle of the minimum wage. Cliff Willits was a black countryman, proud of his people, their speech, their hard collar and their achievements. Born and bred in Cradley, through his book, When I Was a Boy, he ensured that the lives of his folk will never be forgotten, particularly the chain makers, such as his mother. Like so many of her folk, she knew only one way of living, work, family and worship. Her wedding day highlighted these constants in her life. The year was 1877 and along with a dozen other wenches, she was working as a chain maker at a chain shop on the corner of Lyde Green and Bridge Street in Cradley. At about 11 in the morning, she packed up what she was doing. As she did so, she placed her hammer and tongs in the Bosch, a cast iron kind of basin in which the tools were cooled, and then she washed her hands and arms in the dark water of the Bosch. After drying herself with her sweat cloth, she wiped her brow and put on her shawl, holding it together with a pin. That done, she put her flat cap on her head, also with a pin through it to keep it fixed to her hair, and she took off her chainmaker's apron and replaced it with a clean white pinny. Keeping on her hobnail boots, for she had nothing else for her feet, she told her pals that she wouldn't be long and went out. An hour later, she came back and showed her mates her wedding ring, explaining why she'd been away so long by declaring, Will you call get married in five minutes, call ya? Cliff's mum had met her chap outside Cradley Parish Church. They had no witnesses and waited until a woman came by who was carrying flowers to place on a grave. They asked her and someone else they did not know to act as witnesses, which they did. After the wedding, both bride and groom went back to work, unable to afford even a celebratory drink because they had paid all their money on the church fees. Years later, when asked why she and her husband had not even had a wedding day embrace, she answered dismissively, We day have time for that softness. We had to go back to work. Having had an hour off for a wedding, she then grafted that night till nine instead of till eight, and that was her honeymoon. Like his mother and father, 
Cliff himself was born to the hammer, and he was alert to the structure of the industry locally as only an insider could be. His mum worked in a shop that was just two or three steps beyond the back door. Such small workshops had one or two halves. Nearby, in Anvil Yard, Cradley, the residents worked in slightly larger shops with up to three halves. This gathering of tiny, badly built cottages brought to the fore the exploitation of the chainmakers of the black country. In 1888, the senses of an investigator for the Board of Trade were overwhelmed by the terrible conditions in Anvil Yard, later cleared to become the Memorial Gardens. This small collection of overcrowded and insanitary buildings included 14 houses and 10 chain shops. The investigator noted that... In one case, a covered drain running past the end of a dwelling house struck damp through the house wall from floor to ceiling. Open drains everywhere, carrying off household refuse and ruinous privies with overflowing ash pits, loaded the atmosphere with the most pungent odours. Here also are the little domestic workshops built onto the houses so that the occupants can step at once from kitchen to anvil. Almost 20 years later, the journalist and social campaigner Robert Sherrard was so angered and distressed by the open sewers and vile environment of Anvil Yard that he brought to mind lines of Goethe, the famed German writer, so as to describe the lives of the folk of Cradley. Zwischen den Amboss und Hammer. Between the Anvil and the Hammer. The sights Sherrard saw in the chain-making district of the Black Country seared themselves into his soul as much as into his mind. In Cradley Heath, in the heart of one of the wealthiest countries in the world, he watched as a mother strove to earn the vital shillings that she needed to stave off starvation for her and her baby. A spike maker, this woman laboured on her own in a shed fitted with a forge and anvil. On her own, that is, all bar for her child, who sat in a tiny swing chair that dangled from a pole that ran across the workshop. That way, the woman could grind away while she still minded her baby. The previous week, she and her husband had turned a ton of iron into spikes. For this hard graft, they had brought in the meagre sum of just 20 shillings between the pair of them. Out of this, they had paid three shillings and eight months for breeze, fuel, and the same amount for the rent of their home and workshop. On top of that, they had been forced to spend one shilling to attend to damaged tools. That left them with just over 11 shillings to raise their family of five children. This was at a time when the poverty line was put at round about a pound a week, 20 shillings a week, for a moderate family of two children. Worn out from slogging away, this black country woman was just able to ward off destitution and the breakup of her family. The son of a clergyman, Sherard had looked upon many a scene of harsh and ill-paid work in his travels across England. Disturbed and angered by the privations of the nailers of Bromsgrove and of the exploited workers elsewhere in the country, he was determined to draw attention to the worst paid and most murderous trades of England. He did so in 1896 in a series of articles for Pearson's magazine. Collectively, these forceful, unsettling and challenging pieces were called the White Slaves of England. Sadly, Craby Hill... Old Hill, Cradley and the locality around them fell firmly within Sherrard's remit. There was much that was harrowing in the district, especially amongst its chain makers. Sherrard noted that the industry had never been so prosperous, at least if the amount of chain produced and workers employed were indications of well-being. 
Each week, black country men and women made 1,000 tonnes of chain. Chains of every kind that you could think of, from massive four-inch mooring cables down to number 16 on the wire gauge, and including rigging chains, crane cables, mining cables, cart and plough traces, curbs, halters, cow ties, dog chains, and even handcuff links. In a moving and ironic observation, Sherard declared that If chains for slaves are not made here also, it is doubtless because there are no slaves in England, or it may be because hunger can bind tighter than any iron links. And chronic hunger is the experience of most of the women workers in Cradley Heath. One woman chainmaker told him that We has to do with two cotton loaves a day, though three such loaves wouldn't be too much for us. With a husband and six children, this woman had been out of work since Christmas and she detailed to Sherard how she managed to get by with so little money coming in. When possible, she bought a pennyworth of bits of bacon, two pennyworth of meat from the... Czech butcher. ...and a pennyworth of potatoes, which she cooked up to make a dinner for eight. But too often, they were clammed, hungry, making do with dripping, begged from others so as to spread on a piece of bread. Milk was a luxury that was beyond the reach of this woman, battling to keep her family together and struggling to feed them. And as for her children and milk, well, they had to do without it. The same as we. Like so many youngsters throughout the black country, the children were weaned on sop, a mashed-up meal made from the drippings of the teapot and extra hot water poured onto stale bread. In a good week, a bit of margarine might be bought. And each week, this determined and resourceful mother scraped together enough cash to buy a quarter of tea at a shilling a pound, as well as four pounds of sugar and three apens. As for eggs, well... I'd like one for me tea. I haven't had one for years. Clothing was second-hand, the cast-offs of those who were more fortunately circumstanced. The mother herself wore a pair of men's high-low boots, and none of her family had more. Nor he stood up in... When the children's stockings were washed, the youngsters had to be put to bed because none of them had one bit to his feet. As part of her daily struggle to resist the waves of poverty and to remain independent and clean, this woman did her washing on a Saturday night after she had finished work. No truer words were spoken than that working-class women worked all their lives. This particular black country wench made heavy chain of five shillings and fourpence for a hundredweight. That's one twentieth of a tonne. If she laboured continually for 12 hours a day, she could make about one and a half hundred weight a week. But at what a cost to her body and soul was that inadequate and insulting sum earned. Her hands were blistered badly and she was burnt all over her body from the sparks that flew from her hammering of the metal. Yet this woman was not bowed down nor broken by her adversities. She remained cheerful, explaining, It's not what I get to eat. It's me having a contented mind and not letting nothing trouble me. Deeply affected by the dignity and doggedness of this woman of the black country, Sherard could not forget her. After he left Cradley Heath and returned to his home in Ambleside, he sent her a basket of eggs. In return, the woman went to great lengths to send her thanks. She did so by way of a Scotswoman who was able to read and write and who was involved, along with her father, in a bread and tea fund that provided help for families in Cradley Heath in the winter. The letter of thanks went. I beg to thank you for the box of eggs, which came to hand quite safely and which myself and husband and children thoroughly enjoyed. It was quite a treat for us to have such a thing in our house. The young lady was writing this letter for me, 
knows how hard I have to work to make an honest living. There is eight of us in the family, and only my second son, a boy of 13 years of age, getting four shillings a week for blowing in a chain maker's shop, and myself who makes chain. And after working hard from 7am till 9pm, from Monday till dinner time Saturday, and received six shillings. Making his way through Cradley Heath, Sherard saw many workshops where five or six women worked at the anvil, talking above. The din of their hammers and the clanking of their chains, or they may be singing a discordant chorus. Outsiders could be lulled by this sociability into missing the deep signs of want. The old clothes worn by the women, their haggard faces and the pinched looks of their infants. So needy were the women for their sparse wages that they worked throughout their pregnancies. In a matter-of-fact way, one female chainmaker described how, on the day that her son was born, she collared at making chain harrows for the sum of five shillings a week, up till five in the afternoon. And then I give over because I had my cleaning to do. The baby was born less than two hours after she packed in her paid labour for that of making sure her home was spotless. Once delivered... The baby was usually cared for within the workshop so that the mother could carry on chain-making. It cost two shillings and threepence to pay someone to mind a child and this was an expense that could not be borne. This was made plain by a woman whose eyes reminded Sherard of Leah, the first wife of Jacob in the book of Genesis and who was the mother of six sons. Over three days, the black country Leah had forged 728 heavy links, receiving two shillings and twopence. Out of this, she had to pay sevenpence halfpenny for firing, and if she had paid a nurse one shilling, she would have been left with just sixpence halfpenny for all her toil and moil. The Leah-like mother had no doubt about how she and her people were treated. When working worse nor slaves, and getting nothing to eat in the bargain. Like all chain makers, the women workers heated iron rods, pulling the bellows for each link, then bent the red-hot piece, cut it on the hardy, twisted the link, inserted it into the previous link on the chain and welded or closed it with repeated blows of the hand hammer and the bigger oliver hammer that was worked by a treadle. Female chain makers mostly worked in small workshops or at the back of their own homes and made the lighter chain, although within the bigger factories where men made the heavy chain, the bellows were tended by women and girls. Sherard was deeply upset by seeing a sweet little lass dancing on a pair of bellows for threepence a day to supply blast to the chain-maker of the forge and to put threepence a day into the pockets of her employer. As she danced, her golden hair flew out and the fiery sparks which showered upon her head reminded me of fireflies seen at night near Florence dancing over a field of ripe wheat. This young girl was one of many ensnared by the sweaters. These were men who were engaged to provide labour for the factories and who beat down the wages they paid so that they might gain more from the difference between the money paid across by the gaffer and that actually received by the worker. Decried by Sherard as a misuser of children, the man who sweated, the sweet little lass, was declaimed as the most reprehensible thing that offends in the district. Unhappily, he was not on his own. Sweaters abounded locally, preying upon the working poor, forcing them to labour for low wages in unsafe, dirty and rough conditions. It was through apprenticeship indentures that many of these sweaters chained the chain-making young to a life of bound labour. One such indenture referred to a girl of 14. She was supposedly apprenticed to the arts and trade of chain-making, 
labour in reality. She was another source of cheap labour, for she was paid but two shillings and sixpence a week. Sherard believed that she was actually little more than ten years old. He had never before seen such little arms. And her hands were made to cradle dolls. Instead, they were forced to make links for chain harrows, whilst another... Female wisp. Besides her, was forging dog chains. With the swivel and ring complete, this earned her the hopeless amount of three farthings. That's just three quarters of a penny. The chain itself sold for one and sixpence. Working for ten hours a day, the poor little thing could manage just six chains a day. But it was not just men who were the sweaters. Those women who worked in workshops or at the back of their own homes had their jobs from foggers or middle women. One old fogger employed seven girls in her shed. She had never forged a link of a chain in her life, but got a good living from the young wenches who worked for her. For each hundred weights of chain produced, this fogger was paid five shillings and fourpence, but she only passed two shillings and tenpence onto her workers. The chain makers' union was fighting for a level of four shillings for the workers, allowing the still swollen profit of 25% to the fogger. Sherard damned this fogger as one of a numerous class of leeches fast to a gangrene sore. Yet these hard-working women were not downtrodden by their lives. In his wonderful accounts of growing up in Cradley, Cliff Willett stressed that these women were as hard and as durable as the chains they made. They had to be to endure the conditions in which they lived. Many of them were devout Methodists and sang the hymns sung by Sankey, the American evangelist who had visited England twice. Still, the trials and tribulations of the women chainmakers abounded aplenty and they found it hard to join a trade union to fight collectively for their rights. According to the Committee of the House of Lords investigating the sweating system in 1889, black country female chainmakers were so poor that even threepence a week to pay for trade union dues was a load for them. For the next 20 years, these chainmakers continued to toil and to scratch a living, but at last their hardships began to gain more and more national notice as hopes of forging a better society were raised by the reforming new Liberal government of 1906. Importantly, the cause of the black country women chainmakers was taken up by anti-sweating campaigners as well as by suffragists who were fighting for the vote for women. That year, the Daily News, a newspaper owned by the progressive employer George Cabry of Birmingham, put on a sweated industries exhibition in London. Soon after, a book was published which included an article by George Shan on chainmaking in Cradley Ethan District. An active member of the Labour Church, Shan was a tireless activist for the rights of oppressed workers. He noted that the average weekly wage for women chainmakers was between six and eight shillings a week, but was less in the many bad times. These were starvation wages. For that totally inadequate and pitiful sum, the women often worked from six in the morning to eight at night, barring two hours in total for breakfast, dinner and tea. Such long and arduous shifts were in contravention of the factory laws. Then, in 1907, Sylvia Pankhurst, the well-known suffragette and political activist, painted the chainmaker. It showed a woman making chain in a workshop in Cradley Heath, and it would later appear on the cover of the London magazine. The same year, Edward Cabry and George Shan brought out their book Sweated, which also provoked indignation at the privations of the female chainmakers. One description of them was much quoted. It read, As one looks in the shop lit up with the glare of the fire and hot irons and sees the women bare-armed, 
bare-chested, perspiring and working with feverish eagerness, the vision suggests the nether regions, and the shock to the sensibilities of the visitor is almost overpowering. The plight of the female chainmakers continued to draw sympathy and anger. In late April 1909, and as part of the Women's International Suffrage Congress, the London Society of Women's Suffrage organised a pageant of women's trades and professions. 1,000 women marched in their working clothes, holding the tools of their work. They included doctors, teachers, pit-brow women, shop girls, jam makers and many more. Prominent amongst them were chain makers, carrying their hammers. Four months afterwards, in July 1909, another sweaty trades exhibition was held at Earl's Court in London. A feature that drew much attention was that of women in chains, whereby several female chain makers worked on actual forges, like those in Cradley Heath. That month, on Monday, July the 19th, a mass meeting of these workers was held in the town. Grave complaints were made about the lowness of the wages and it was asserted that the women were unable to have the necessaries of life after working hard for a week. Indeed, it was stated that for the 500 women making chain locally, their average wage was a meagre five shillings a week. The women voted to go on strike if the employers did not raise their wages immediately. Matters now moved quickly as the women became organised. Four days later, another mass meeting was held, this time of the Hammered Chain Makers Society at the Empire Theatre in Cradley Heath. It was attended by J.O. Grady, MP for Leeds and Chairman of the General Federation of Trade Unions. He was joined by Julia Varley, a prominent local female trade unionist, and Mary MacArthur, the leading figure in the recently formed National Federation of Women Workers, to which the women at the meeting agreed to affiliate. It seems that a strike was held off because of the imminent passing of the Trades Board Act in 1909, and in November the first board was set up for the hammered and dollied or tommied section of the chain trade. In March 1910, its members fixed a minimum wage of twopence halfpenny an hour for chain makers in Cradley, Cradley Heath and Old Hill. This would lead to the women receiving about 10 shillings for a 55-hour week, almost twice as much as they had earned before, although still well below the poverty line. Unhappily, however, many employers invoked a clause that allowed them to delay paying the increase until the August. They then used their position of power to prevail upon their workers to contract out of the agreement to pay the minimum wage for a further six months. It was feared that this time would be used to build up stocks of chain so that when the new rates of payment did come into force, the gaffers would be able to lay off their workers. Steadfast to its motto of to fight the struggle and to right the wrong, in the summer of 1910, the National Federation of Women Workers recommended that those women who had signed to contract out should cancel their action and that those who had not signed should remain resolute and that the minimum rate should be paid immediately. In response, the recalcitrant employers refused to let the chain makers have new materials and recalled the iron rods which had already been delivered to their workshops. The women had nothing with which to make chains. The union had no option but to call out on strike those who were working for less than the minimum rate. Their action was called the Cradley Heath Lockout, although the strikers were mostly working in workshops at the back of their homes and were thus not locked out of a factory. On August the 21st, 400 women attended a meeting at Granger's Lane School. Each of them pledged not to contract out of the new rate and instead agreed to strike. 
these female trade unionists of Greyley Heath and District face the daunting prospect of no income, all except a small sum of five shillings a week strike pay. A public appeal was launched to raise money to help them and the non-trade unionists who had also gone out on strike. Nearly £4,000 for this fighting fund was collected quickly. Support came from across the classes, with the Dean of Worcester addressing a large meeting of women chainmakers in Cradley Heath itself. He congratulated them on emancipating themselves from slavery and read out a letter from the Bishop of Worcester, who had also sent a cheque of £5 for their fund. In particular, the bishop rejoiced that the women were being well supported in their determination to avail themselves of the full provisions of the Trades Board Act. Bolstered by this fund, the female chainmakers were able to fight to the finish. Because of the Trades Board's legislation, the government refused to tender contracts with the firms not paying the new minimum rates. Faced with this problem and with the bad publicity against the employers, on the 2nd of September, the Chainmakers Association agreed that its members would pay the minimum rates. However, there was one proviso that the Women Chainmakers Union should financially support those who refused to work for employers who would not pay the minimum rate. The union accepted and the fighting fund was vital in supporting those women still out on strike. Slowly, more employers signed up to the minimum rate, although hardship was still widespread, so much so that on October the 3rd, a procession marched through Cradley Heath to a meeting at the Empire Theatre where free bread was distributed. At last, by mid-October, and after 13 weeks' strike, all the women chainmakers had returned to work victorious, as every employer in the area had signed up to the minimum rate. It was a remarkable achievement, and one woman was regarded as the architect of the victory. She was Mary MacArthur. On September the 10th, 1910, the County Express proclaimed that she was undoubtedly the central figure in this dispute. A few months later, on Monday, April the 3rd, 1911, the Manchester Guardian noted that around 2,000 women in Cradley Heath met MacArthur to present her with a gold watch and a bangle as a mark of their gratitude to her. The role of Mary MacArthur was indeed vital. On her first visit to Cradley Heath, she wrote that The red glow of the forge fires and the dim shadows of the chainmakers made me think of some torture chamber of the Middle Ages. MacArthur was particularly successful in publicising the chainmakers' campaign with language such as this and for arousing the sympathy of Conservatives as well as Liberals, men as well as women and the middle class as well as the working class. She did so through the newspapers and a pioneering Pathé newsreel film which powerfully highlighted the hardships of the women's work. One scene focused on children playing around the forge and the next showed a procession of the women chainmakers along with a large crowd of sympathisers marching down the streets. The manager of Pathé estimated the film was seen by 10 million people across the country and it affected public opinion by portraying the employers as the villains against the brave female underdogs. Born in 1880, MacArthur was a middle-class Scot who became a combative and passionate campaigner for the rights of women and she played a vital role in unionising the women chainmakers. In 1903, she became secretary of the Women's Trade Union League and three years later was a founder of the Anti-Sweating League. 
An active member of the Independent Labour Party, she also founded the National Federation of Women Workers in 1906, serving as President and then General Secretary. Moreover, her testimony in 1909 to the Parliamentary Select Committee on Homework was influential in the passing of the Trades Boards Act to establish regulatory boards and minimum rates of pay in four low-paid trades. These were chain-making, box-making, lace-making and finishing and ready-made clothing. After the victory of the female chainmakers in 1910, MacArthur was chosen to stand as the Labour Party candidate for Hales Owen in the 1918 general election when some women were given the vote for the first time. For all her importance in the 1910 lockout, however, there were others whose part should also be appreciated. They include Julia Varley, a former mill worker from Bradford who had become an active trade unionist as a teenager. She came to Birmingham in 1909 when Edward Cabbery asked her to start a branch of the National Federation of Women Workers at his family's Bourneville factory. Soon after, she became one of the leading organisers of the Chainmakers' Strike. As she recalled, We went into the forges, talking to the women as they hammered away, awakening their consciousness to their responsibilities, appealing to their pride and their motherhood. Another leading personality was Thomas Sitch, General Secretary of the Chainmakers and Strikers Association. He had started work aged eight and was responsible for the rapid growth of the union from 1894 and for its success in improving the wages and working conditions of its members. He and his son Charles were significant in gaining the support of male chainmakers for the strikers and in working with Julia Varley to organise the strike and to muster local support via marches and meetings. Such support was essential in boosting morale and in emphasising communal solidarity. In early September 1910, for example, the Dudley Herald explained that On Wednesday evening, about 800 women chainmakers and a goodly number of other friends held a demonstration in Cradley Heath and Cradley. Several thousand people assembled in Granger's Lane and on the five ways to see them off. And of course, the women chainmakers themselves played a vital role in their own victory. They were infused with a powerful sense of camaraderie and belief in their cause that was manifested through the singing of stirring songs such as Rouse Ye Women to the tune of Men of Harlech. Rouse ye women, long enduring, beat no iron, blow no bellows, till ye win the fight ensuring, pay that is your due. At length the light is breaking, the sweater's throne is shaking. Oh, do your part with all your art, a sweeter world in making. Stand together strong and splendid in your union till you've ended. Tyranny and with toil blended, beauty, joy and art. Rouse ye women, long enduring, beat no iron, blow no bellows, till you win the fight ensuring, pay that is your due. The female chainmakers were very much proactive in gaining attention, as on August the 27th, 1910, when a deputation went to Birmingham, draped with chains around their necks, to raise funds. The gaffers were increasingly under strong pressure, 
facing a negative press and a local community emboldened to fight for justice. This pressure increased on September the 2nd when the Chain Manufacturers Association agreed to meet the strikers' representatives. The chain-making women held a big procession through Craby Heath and marched to picket the meeting. A photograph was taken of a group of older women chainmakers dressed in their Sunday best and holding collection boxes and placards proclaiming England's disgrace. They included Patience Round of Cradley, aged 79, the oldest chain-making woman at the time. She was interviewed by various newspapers, with one reporter explaining that Her life is wrapped up in the making of chains, and she will talk for hours of the sparks and the wonderful chains she has made during her career. However, Patience Round also emphasised that the strike had aroused her to act, old as she was. She told the newspapers that she had attended a strike meeting just a mile away from Cradley Heath to hear Mary MacArthur speak. She was excited that she had ventured beyond Cradley for the first time in her life and declared that... These are wonderful times. I never thought that I should live to assert the rights of women. It has been the week of my life. Three meetings and such beautiful talking. Then... In a dramatic event at the Trade Union Congress on September the 13th, 1910, a deputation of three female chainmakers craved leave to address the delegates. It was given readily and room was made for them at the front of the platform. National and local newspapers reported in detail the scene as the three pale-faced women clothed in black came forward, each carrying upwards of a yard of heavy chain. Absolute silence enveloped the hall, as one of them, a Miss Knott, explained that... We are on strike pleading for two and a half pence an hour, and if you will stand by us, we will fight for it and get it. Miss Knott then thanked the delegates for hearing the women and held up the chain and shouted... One penny for making this. Her action provoked calls of shame, whilst one delegate rose and exclaimed with indignation, and this... A Christian world? In response, the chairman hoped the Congress would support these poor slaves. He then moved that it should express its wholehearted sympathy with the female chainmakers in their plucky fight and promised them the financial and moral support of the whole organised labour movement. The resolution was passed. As a result of their victory, by 1914, the female chainmakers of the black country were earning 12 shillings and fourpence halfpenny a week. It was still too little, but it was around double the sum that they had earned before the Federation began its campaign of unionisation. With the money left over from the fund that had been set up for the striking women, the Workers' Institute on the corner of Lower High Street and Whitehall Road, Cradley Heath, was built. It became a centre locally for female trade unionism and the headquarters of the Chainmakers and Strikers Association until 1972. In 2009, the building was taken down brick by brick and put up again at the Black Country Living Museum. Its presence is a lasting and fitting tribute to those hard-working women chainmakers who bettered their working conditions through their own endeavours and in so doing inspired countless thousands more. You can learn more about the Chainmakers at the Black Country Living Museum in Dudley, where the Cradley Heath Workers' Institute, originally opened on the 10th of June 1912, has been re-erected. At Mary MacArthur's suggestion, 
The institute was funded from surplus money raised during the women's strike. There is also a fascinating resource entitled Women Chainmakers, Be Anvil or Hammer, supported by the Museum, the National Union of Teachers and the Trades Union Congress at www.teachers.org.uk forward slash chainmakers. To hear further podcasts on the rich industrial heritage of the black country, visit our website www.historywm.com And to ensure you don't miss new programmes, register for our newsletter and download our podcast app, History West Midlands On Air, at the iTunes App Store.